tells her the hour is fast coming when the place of worship will be inconsequential because God is spirit and any place can become a holy place, a thin place, even this place. And that's our hope, that as we engage with these meditations, this place might become a thin place. Welcome to a Thin Place Podcast with Dr. Larry Taylor. Happy New Year. My name is Mike Young. Of course, Happy New Year is how we greet each other when the coming of a new year. We have celebrations and fireworks. Another year arrives. A new number appears on our calendars. And it's sort of a rote and habitual response. But this new year seems to have been more eagerly anticipated than most in my recent memory. 2020 seems unprecedented, at least in my lifetime. That seems to be the narrative with volatile politics and global pandemics, divisiveness among family and friends that's been exacerbated by social media, really unlike anything I've ever experienced. So 2021 begins with a glimmer of hope, it seems. It's not an enthusiastic hope. I mean, it feels more like a sigh of relief that 2020 is behind us. And better than 2020 is a pretty low bar to clear for a new year to be considered happy. I'm currently reading Albert Camus' book, The Myth of Sisyphus. I know, I know. A friend of mine asked if he needed to fly down and perform an intervention on me. This is Camus' articulation of his philosophy that came to be known as absurdism. He felt that life had no meaning and that any pursuit of meaning in this life was simply absurd. He felt the absurdity sprung from any claim of meaning, whether by science or religion or nationalism, any claim in comparison to the lived reality and experience of life. Sounds dark, but to understand where he was coming from, we need to recognize the context in which he was writing this. This particular book was published in 1942. Camus lived in Paris at the time of the Nazi invasion of France. He volunteered to join the army, but wasn't accepted because he had had tuberculosis. So he joined the French resistance and edited a underground paper called Combat. I'll not go into this too deep right here, but I can imagine Camus might think that 2020 to be a year to celebrate in comparison to Europe in the 1940s. With all the upheaval and instability, we find ourselves trying to negotiate and understand here in the first days of 2021. I can't accept Camus' premise that there is no meaning that the world is simply absurd. My only argument against this is faith. I can't seem to shake it. There are times when faith seems to be the most real thing that I know. Larry's sermon that we'll listen to today speaks to this. It's entitled, The Risk of Faith. And it was a great way for me to open this new year.
I hope it is for you as well. I feel sorry for every one of you who does not get to preach after that. A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, beginning with verse 30. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all the shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Jesus' favorite subject for his preaching was the kingdom of God. Such preaching was largely misunderstood by the Jews and certainly by the Romans. In fact, even Jesus' disciples had difficulty understanding all of his talk about a kingdom. And so for that reason, he constantly sought new ways of illustrating his subject. Over and over in the Gospels, we find Jesus asking, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Jesus would tell parables to teach about his kingdom. In the Gospel of Mark, those parables are clustered in the fourth chapter. The substance of these parables were common everyday sites in Palestine, such as laborers in a vineyard, or a farmer sowing his seeds, or a mustard tree. Jesus' parables came alive as living pictures rather than abstract ideas. With his parables, Jesus would arrest the attention of his listeners, tell his story, and then leave their minds in sufficient doubt to tease them into further thought about what he had said. His parables were open-ended and invited individual interpretation. Jesus felt no need to control the interpretation. He was a master at the art of storytelling. This parable of the mustard seed is one of the parables of the growth of the kingdom. While Jesus himself never defined the kingdom, John Dominic Crosson, leading New Testament scholar, says, the kingdom of God is what the world would be if God were king rather than Herod or Caesar. There was something about the process of growth that captivated the curiosity of ancient peoples. Growth is still a mysterious thing. Any child who's ever planted a seed in a paper cup and watched it sprout and grow in the windowsill has evidenced that same curiosity about growth. In the parable of the mustard seed, Jesus pointed first to the tiny seed of mustard and then to the full-grown mustard plant. The plant grew wild and sometimes attained a height of 10 feet. There was a marked contrast between the humble beginnings and the full-blown product of a mustard seed. 
And Jesus said that his kingdom is somehow very much like that. Every great movement has started small. Big things come from small beginnings. In the 18th century, democracy was only an idea in the minds of a few idealists and humanists. The abolition of slavery in America was at first an idea in the mind of a handful of radicals. At one time, the Nazi party of Germany consisted of Adolf Hitler and seven devoted followers in a Munich beer garden. Communism was at first a band of determined revolutionaries in Russia, and even prior to that, it was an idea in the mind of Marx and Engels. And at one point, the hijacking of the Southern Baptist Convention was an idea of two men chewing the fat and eating donuts and drinking coffee in New Orleans. Nothing could have seemed more insignificant than an unlettered, self-styled rabbi teaching a handful of men how to pray. No movement ever had a more inconspicuous beginning than that. Such a thing must have seemed to be an absolute absurdity up beside the philosophies of Greece and the power of Rome. Among the Hebrews, the phrase small as a grain of mustard seed, was a common proverb for illustrating something very minute indeed. A more apt illustration of the way the kingdom begins is hard to imagine. The kingdom of God has very humble beginnings in the heart of one who loves Jesus. The point of this parable is not the gradual growth of the kingdom, but rather the contrast between its small beginnings and its great potential. The disciples had failed to understand that they were the kingdom. They may have been discouraged because they weren't seeing the results of their work as they had hoped for. Jesus was saying, now don't be discouraged by the small beginnings of what we're trying to do here. The apparent insignificant results of Jesus' preaching and teaching were no measure by which to judge the greatness of the kingdom. This parable would remind us of the ultimate vulgarity of confusing size with significance. Baptists need to be reminded of that often. God's instrument in the world has usually been a creative minority, but God's people have seldom been fond of minority movements. Christianity's been dominated by majority concepts, and yet Jesus concentrated on just 12 followers, and one of them was a devil. In that American classic, The Grapes of Wrath, Tom, the son in the family, says... One person with their mind made up can shove a lot of folks around. Jesus was never deceived by the size of a crowd, but he did understand the power of one really convinced person. The number of people present when he preached never concerned him, but the quality of the questions they asked later and the interest they showed were further opportunities to teach 
Jesus delivered some of his greatest sermons to a single person. A woman by a well, an old man in the night, curious about new birth. But to his numbers conscious church, that's often seemed to be a waste of good preaching. The parable of the mustard seed rebukes our cult of bigness. Jesus knew that numbers can be completely meaningless. On a hot summer Sunday afternoon, it used to be a common thing for a million New Yorkers to flock to Coney Island. That's more people than there have been Christian missionaries in 2,000 years, a million people on a single afternoon. But someone once asked, well, what does it all mean? And the answer came, it only means peanuts, a million people walking up and down the boardwalk eating peanuts. Mere numbers never mean anything as far as God's kingdom is concerned. We are victimized by this age of Wall Street, Madison Avenue consumerism, and mega corporations. We have accepted the world's criteria of success uncritically. Bigger is better, larger is essential, more means success, and greater means growth. Theologian Walter Brueggemann says, in a consumer society, people join groups that will serve them, and that sometimes includes the church. The church growth movement is consumer-oriented, and Jesus wasn't into the church growth movement because he settled for 12 and later 11 committed followers. And theologian Karl Barth reminded us the kingdom of God is not for sale and has no need for any slick salesman. No one in the New Testament writes more about growth than Paul. He was concerned that his churches grow, but never once, not even one time, does Paul speak of growth in terms of numbers. Not once. Isn't that strange? Isn't it strange how we've missed it? Baptistic statisticacus is a terrible infection, this preoccupation with counting one another. It's poisoned our whole denominational life because Baptists worship numerical success, and it's brought us to the very brink of division as we pursue big, impressive numbers as though they mean something. Until Baptists get over that worship, we will continue to be sick. There was something about the tiny mustard seed that captured the essence of Jesus' kingdom, the world of the infinite. Within the tiny is open to the eye by even a small microscope. I remember when our children were young, sharing with them one evening their first look into a droplet magnified. We got out the small microscope, and their little eyes just danced with excitement as they gazed at the microcosm in a drop of water. But long before the microscope, Jesus taught the infinite potential of something which is as tiny as a grain of mustard seed. 
When the tiny seed of the mustard plant had reached its full size, it was a considerable bush. The birds were fond of the little black seeds, and a cloud of birds over a mustard plant was an everyday sight. In the Old Testament, one of the ways of describing a great empire was to liken it to a tree with the tributary nations like branches where the birds found shelter. Jesus was saying, the kingdom will grow, don't worry about that. The growth will be all out of proportion to its tiny beginnings. It may not be dramatic at first, it may not be dramatic at any given moment, but nothing could be more certain. There's a scientific experiment designed to show the effect of commercial dyes. It involves a large beaker of water and a small container of dye. Drop by drop, the dye is inserted, and at first there's no effect. And then suddenly, the water takes on the tincture of the dye. Soon the whole vessel is colored. That's the way it is with the kingdom. Growth comes when we stay at the task. Everything must have a beginning, and beginnings are usually small. But somewhere between the small beginnings and the final result, there's another element. Somewhere between the mustard seed and the mustard tree, there is this third factor, and it is the factor of risk. The seed has to be risked to the soil before it grows. It has to be committed in faith to the ground. The winter of 1620 was a devastating period for the little band of pilgrims on the coast of the New World. The cruel weather and merciless disease had killed nearly half their number by spring. But warm weather finally came and brought with it the promise of hope. And that spring, the pilgrims made a fateful decision. Should they roast and eat the few grains of seed they still possessed, or should they deposit them in the soil of a new world in the hopes of a harvest come fall? They decided on the latter. And so with the spring planting that year, there went their very lives. Ah, oh, but the harvest, the harvest was great in the fall. The seed had been committed in faith. God provided the increase. There's always a risk in faith. We have to risk everything on something. Soren Kierkegaard likened faith to a leap in the dark. He said, we have to jump, we have to commit, and we can't afford the luxury of suspended judgment. We have to chance that God is there to catch us. We have to risk the seed to the soil. We have to trust the promise of a delayed return. Personal character doesn't develop when there is an immediate payoff. We have to risk even the appearance of death as we invest the seed in faith to the soil because the secure life and the life of faith are fundamentally incompatible. I can't think of very many things that are more harmful to human character than gambling. 
Our nation is turning wholesale to gambling to provide the revenues we want without paying more taxes. Everyone wants something for nothing. But we can pay now or we can pay later. And already we are reaping a social and moral whirlwind from gambling. We are creating what is going to become the largest class of addicts in our society. And who will pay for their addiction? But in a wider sense, risk is the very stuff of life. Every one of us is a gambler of sorts. We have to hazard our lives on something or other. Columbus discovered a new world because he believed in the idea that the earth is really round. Life is a continuous venture into the unknown and the unseen. Life without risk would be an intolerable bore. The zest in living comes from our capacity to risk ourselves for something in which we truly believe, whether it's a business opportunity or a home or a promotion or a personal conviction. One unfortunate profession that has a whole lot to do with gambling is the weatherman. I feel sorry for him. I feel sorry for him every night. He has to make a prediction. And when he does and makes a mistake, it's a matter of public record. He has to risk being wrong. Mark Twain used to poke fun at the New England weatherman who knew he had to make a forecast, but who absolutely hated to be wrong. And Twain said a typical forecast went something like this. Probably northeast to southwest winds, varying to the southward and westward and eastward in points between high and low barometers swapping around from place to place, probable areas of rain, snow, hail, and drought succeeded or preceded by earthquakes with thunder and lightning. P.S. It's possible the whole program may be changed in the meantime. Life's full of risks, and sometime we have to commit ourselves. At some point, we have to plant the mustard seed. The Bible is just full of the risks that are involved in faith. Jesus taught that unless the grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it'll bring forth no new life. Unless we lose life, we can't hope to find it. Unless we're ready to die, we can't truly expect to live. There's a risk in faith, and everyone takes the risk of faith in something or other. The question is, on what are you betting? On what have you staked everything? We read that at the foot of the cross, the soldiers gamble to see who would get the Lord's robe. They cast their dice for his garment, gambling at the foot of the cross. But there was no small gamble being made that day upon the cross itself. Jesus was trusting in the power of God to conquer evil. He was trusting that there is something in you and me to which sacrifice and love can make their appeal. British chaplain Stuttart Kennedy wrote, and sitting down they watched him there, the soldiers did. There while they played with dice, he made his sacrifice and died upon the cross to rid God's world of sin. 
He too was the gambler, my Christ. He took his life and threw it for a world redeemed. And ere his agony was done, before the westering sun went down, crowning that day with its crimson crown, he knew that he had won. Jesus risked it all for us. He chanced it all that we might know life. There was gambling at the foot of the cross, all right, but there was a gamble upon the cross. To live or to die is to take chances. And so values come into play. Some people are betting that the only thing that is real is the tangible, the physical. They live for it. They live for today. They live for its money and its power and its notoriety and its pleasure and its thrill. Life is now. Grab all the gusto you can. Life consists in the abundance of what a person possesses. The Christian, on the other hand, is staking everything on the life of the Spirit. Happiness, fulfillment, time, eternity, death. The Christian votes for truth and beauty and goodness and is not afraid of it from whatever source it comes. The Christian believes that Spirit is ultimately real. The truly wretched people I know are the ones who are trying to vote both ways. We cannot serve two masters. Faith is risking everything on Christ. Faith is a risk supported by a memory and a promise. And we are called to risk everything on Christ. We can't stay neutral. We may not make up our minds today, but we are rapidly making up our lives. To sow the seed in faith is to reap life everlasting. The new year, by the way, is a good time to decide about Jesus and his kingdom. It's a good time to plant the mustard seed. Shall we pray? We ask your blessing, Lord, on the scripture and the place it finds in our hearts and minds and spirits. We ask your blessing on this hour we've spent with your people, consciously in your presence. We pray that it'll have implications for the other hours that follow this week. We ask for more faith. We ask for the kind of faith that leads us to be daring, venturesome, bold, and courageous. We thank you for those who are. We look to them, and we would imitate them. We pray that for the living of these days, You'll give us all we need to be followers of Christ for what that costs us of words, of substance, of position and standing, that we might be ready and willing 
to follow the Lord who is ever doing a new thing that we might discover the way the Spirit's moving so that we might go with Him. Amen. Larry says at one point in this sermon that life is full of risks and at some point we have to commit ourselves. And then later, that faith is a risk supported by a memory and a promise. And we are called to risk everything on Christ. We may not make up our minds today, but we are rapidly making up our lives. During these days of New Year's resolutions, this quote struck me. It called to mind an interview with Mary Catherine Bateson that I heard recently on Krista Tippett's On Being podcast. Bateson is the daughter of famous anthropologist Margaret Mead. And she wrote a book entitled Composing a Life. And she talks about the improvisational art of living. I find that book title and that idea very compelling. It seems to me that committing this mustard seed of faith to the soil of this new year that we're all facing to be a fantastic exercise in the improvisational art of living. The writer of Hebrews in the Christian scriptures says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. To me, that doesn't seem absurd at all. It sounds like a wonderful way to make up or compose our lives. And I look forward to the improvisational and artful lives of faith that we will be blessed to live in this coming year and in the years that follow. I'm happy you've chosen to begin this new year with us here on A Thin Place with Dr. Larry Taylor. I would love to hear any thoughts that you might have, and you can send them to us at thinplacepodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in discussing these meditations, I've created a Facebook group to facilitate that. Maybe we can redeem that space from the noise that we often find there. Our podcast is available to stream on all of the regular platforms. Please rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice and share it on your social media. And as always, I'm so thankful for Larry and the prayerful and artful work he put into these sermons, as well as for all that he and Linda have meant to so many of us throughout the years. This has been A Thin Place with Dr. Larry Taylor, and I'm Mike Young. Happy New Year, grace and peace.